0: Good morning, church. I'm Peter Casey, um, and today we'll be reading from Matthew 10, 1 through 15, which can be found on page 814 of your Pew Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 10, 1 through 15. At the end of the passage, um, I'll conclude by saying this is the word of the Lord, and you guys will respond with thanks be to God. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that town or house. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, good
1: morning, everybody. Hey, if I've met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really glad that you're with us. Let me make one announcement and then two... I'm gonna do two ironic slash awkward things before we jump into the text and pray. Uh, first, a quick announcement. You saw in your bulletin that we are gonna follow the Johnson County Board of Commission's kind of new regulations with masks for children's ministry. And so beginning next week, our kids' rooms will be mask optional, both for adults and kids. We'll have a mask required space down in our overflow room, which is in the fellowship hall, kind of down this way from my right, your left, which, by the way, if you're in the room and I know we hit some capacities in some of our kids' rooms, and so if you need to wiggle around a little bit or you just need some space, you're welcome to go down there. We're live streaming on video down there. And then the room directly back here, we call it our wiggle room. It's actually called the parlor, but we use it like a wiggle room. There's a broadcast in there as well. So if you just need to move around with your kiddos, there's activity packets in there for them, and you can kind of have some space. So, so next week, the policy changes. We'll remain kind of mask-optional everywhere else in the building uh, except for that fellowship hall area, which will be a mask-required space on Sunday for those who that serves and they feel more comfortable that way. All right, that's the announcement. You can read some more details on your bulletin. Okay, here's the ironic-slash-awkward thing. If you weren't here two weeks ago, this may not make a whole lot of difference for you, but um, two weeks ago, I made this impassioned plea for our children's ministry, which, again, I probably would make that again this morning. I think we did hit some capacities, and it's so fun to have families, um, and that just means we need some people to help. And we're really committed to not burning out our volunteers, so I gave this, like, plea for maybe 12 or 15 more volunteers. And then I preached for, like, 50 minutes, which is like the opposite of a winsome call to children's ministry. So while they're down there sweating and cursing, I was saying, oh, trust Jesus, and go and it was just a bad idea. So I want to own that. Actually, our goal is that we would go about an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. Um, Sometimes there's things that I feel really passionate about or just not very well prepared to kind of speak on, to be honest, and so it goes a little bit long. But just so you know, um, those of you who are... earnestly eager to volunteer for kids ministry our goal really is to keep our service at about an hour and 15 minutes uh the sermon about 30 35 minutes but I just want to own that I kind of shot ourselves in the foot last week when I made that announcement and then just like pushed really hard and I think still two people did sign up so God bless you those of you who (laughs) like engage that way like you are rock stars I don't even know who you are but the Lord knows he sees you and we are grateful um but for everybody else who was watching your clock, going like, "There's no way I'm serving in kids," uh, I promise we will get better and uh, we'll be done on time uh, from here on out. Even if we just crash land and go, fine, let's take communion, we'll stop right there. Uh, we're, we're committed to that. So that's ironic that I made the announcement for kids and then went too long. Here's the other ironic thing: I actually want to make an announcement about announcements. In light of that, we actually did some soul searching as a staff, and here's the deal: I, as you can tell, feel this like insatiable, maybe like compelling maybe obsessive desire to explain everything really clearly. I can't actually do it, but somehow in my mind, like I have this deal where it serves you, it's a little bit neurotic for me, and I think if I can just say every detail then everybody knows what they need, they can be involved. And there's there's good things about that. Like we believe that church is more than just the Sunday gathering. And so I know that if you're not clear why we're doing what we're doing, you may not be clear why they're for you or what to jump into. So I tend to explain things that are already in your bulletin, They're already in your newsletter, and so um, I'm sorry about that, and you're welcome. For those of you who love details, that's also your love language. So here's going to be our solution. You saw on your bulletin, we put this little QR code on there. This is mostly for me. So if you were to zoom in on that, what you will see is a series of six videos of me explaining in glorious detail these things that you need to know about. So those of you who are like, no way, dude, I'm never doing that, you're welcome. And those of you who like me would love to get more information, you'll find it all there. So that should help us a little bit and help me curb my kind of compulsive desire to keep explaining things over and over again, as I'm doing right now. So I will just stop, check out the QR code. However, there's one kind of Easter egg on there that's not on this deal. Next Sunday, we're going to do what's called a name amnesty Sunday. I'm just going to tell you that. We'll have name tags, a chance for you to get to know each other a little bit. We'll organize our service to make some space. All the rest of the details are online. You can try that out and we'll see how many hits we get from that. Okay. Hey, let me pray for us for real and we'll jump into this text. Thanks for being patient with me as we figure out how to go forward together as a community. I'm really excited about this passage. So, would you just kind of calm your heart for a moment? Maybe even like in your lap, open up your hands just in a receptive posture to the Lord and ask Him to speak to you just in the silence of your own heart. Just say, God, would you speak to me? You know what you need to hear, He knows what you need to hear. Um, Whether this verse feels particular to you or not, would you just ask God to speak to you uh, in these next um, thirty to thirty-five minutes? So you gotta realize we've already prayed quite a bit, but it's just helpful to stop and say that we need you, and more than a clever sermon or faithful exposition, we need your Spirit to work. If you don't work, then we have um, we have nothing. So thank you that you promised to work. Thank you that you promised to be faithful to your word. Thank you that you promised to speak to us. I pray you'd soften hard hearts. Would you soothe wounded hearts? Would you draw people that don't yet know you? And for those who are really hurting and disillusioned, would you feel close to them, even in this moment while we talk about your kingdom, your mission, and what you are like as you call us on that mission? So speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we come into Matthew chapter 10. We've been in Matthew now for more than a year, and Matthew is laboring to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He starts with a genealogy that kind of traces the birth line of Jesus to show us hey, he has the rightful lineage to be the king. And then we see him do some miracles. We see him have validation of his ministry. We see him do battle against Satan in the desert Then we see him go teach about what the kingdom is. So, Matthew 5 to 7, after he's established his kind of lineage and rightful space as king, he teaches about the kingdom for about three chapters. Actually, five sermons that we see in the book of Matthew. Chapter 10 is the second one. Those five sermons, most scholars would say, kind of match the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Jesus is this new Moses, this deliverer, the one who's going to fulfill the law. He's the one who actually. Was promised by Moses to come and welcome and ransom and welcome a people to himself. So so we're in that second section there. He teaches on the kingdom, and then in chapters 8 and 9, he demonstrates his authority. So not only can he just talk it, but he can actually do it. So he has authority over the spiritual world, authority over the physical world. And we end that section with him just declaring that he has authority over our lives, a call to discipleship, a call to follow him, a call to give him our allegiance. And then we were in the last Part of chapter nine last week as Stephen wrapped up that section and you see that Jesus kind of goes throughout every area. He looks around and we see in verse 36 of chapter nine that he has compassion on people because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The heart of God towards people that are hurting is not to shame you and tell you to do better and try harder. It's compassion. Even where he calls you to holiness and calls you to die to yourself, that's out of compassion because that's what's best for you. So we see Jesus looks out with compassion and his response then is to tell his followers to pray that God would bring workers into the harvest field. He sees this broken, scattered, shattered people that need compassion and says, oh, that is ripe for the gospel. Because the good news of God starts with God rescuing sinners and broken people to come to people who need him. And so when he sees hurting and he sees harassed and he sees helpless, he sees opportunity for people to be opened up to their need for God. So he says, hey, would you pray that God would send out workers into the harvest? And then as you read in chapter 10, what we see in this section is Jesus actually commissions his followers to fulfill that very prayer which is really beautiful. So, so a couple of context things. It's a compassionate call that Jesus has. He tells us to pray for God to move in the hearts of folks and to send people out. And then the means to that end is his actual followers. He invites us to join him on his mission, which is amazing. So the things that you're praying about, things you're asking God to do, oftentimes he will use you in some small ways or big ways to actually accomplish that. We, we kind of see that. From the context. And then in this section, he sends out his 12 disciples on a very particular kind of missionary journey. Now, we'll see him do this a couple of other places, but it's helpful just to name in this moment what we're watching as we hear this sermon. So, we have context of compassion, context of the prayer being answered. The context of this sermon is a very particular slice of history given kind of commands and parameters and guidelines to 12 particular men to help shape their ministry. And I say that because sometimes when you read the Bible, you're not uh, clear whether or not you should do a one-to-one parallel. Like, can you have more than one staff? Can you have more than one set of sandals? Like, how do you apply this passage specifically? Should should you actually raise money if you're going to go be a missionary? And so it's helpful just to stop and say, in the Bible, oftentimes in context, we see very specific commands and explanations for people. So like uh, Father Abraham, right? It's promised like a particular land for his descendants. Now we read that and we shouldn't, as we're praying about like where to buy a house, read that as a promise for us. But what we do see in that is the way God works with Abraham tells us what God is like. It tells us how he works, how he keeps his promises, how, how he thinks about people, how he provides what he promises. Even, even as we see in the scriptures that it takes a long time for that fulfillment is instructive for us. So we read particular commands to particular people, not necessarily looking for like a prescription for us, but we see a description of the way God works. I'm saying all that because as we walk through this section, I want us to see the heart of God for these 12 disciples that he sends out on the first missionary journey. And our, our particular place is different. Our space in history is different. Our, our moment in kind of redemptive history is different. And yet we learn something about who God is and what he's like and what he's also calling us to. Because you wouldn't want to just read this and go, that's not for me, and turn the page and just jump to chapter 11. You actually want to engage this text and say, if that's what he said to them, what's the principle? What's the value? What do I learn about God? What's the, what's the call to, to my heart and life? So, so though you may not be sent out as one of these 12 disciples in the first century AD, you're being called to follow Jesus. So, so look with me in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, and he called to him the 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. So in summary way, what we see here is a summary of what Christ has actually already been doing. And he's connecting his call to them and the authority he's been displaying and saying, I'm sending you out and I want you to do what I've been doing. It's a call to join Jesus in his ministry. So he came as the Messiah. He was from that one family line. He proved it, he taught it, he demonstrated it, and then he invites us as the church to come and join him. And so there's something like really humbling about that, something pretty overwhelming about that. When you think about how we struggle just to kind of maintain uh, good work ethics and, and our relationships in healthy places and parenting our kids and thinking about dating and thinking about retirement well, like there's so many places we feel like really weak So for the Messiah to invite us or commission us to join him on his journey is is actually pretty fascinating. So just stop right there for a second and go, this is Jesus' call to you by application of his call to them to be a part of his redemptive plan in the world. Messiah came to actually establish the kingdom of God. And we're told to labor with him to help bring that about. So, So as we look at this text, I want to just highlight five things that we see. Here's the first one. He calls a diverse people. I'm going to use some P's. He calls a diverse people. So look in verse 2. He names these 12 apostles. You see Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and Matthew, and another James, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. History would tell us about these 12 men that they are all across the spectrum in lots of places. Some of them are really famous. Some of them wrote books of the Bible. Some of them are are people that you name your children after. Some of them are only mentioned in lists like this. So you have famous and you have fairly obscure. You have people that come from wealth in these lists and you have people that we don't know their background, but the way it's described and other things we know about them, you would assume that they didn't come from from wealth. They come from a, a space of need or want. You have people on opposite spectrums like politically, so Matthew as a tax collector would be directly opposed to Simon the Zealot. Zealots in the first century were rebelling against Rome and refusing to pay Roman taxes as they thought it was idolatrous against God. And so you have Matthew who's collecting taxes and Simon the Zealot refusing to pay taxes. Read into that wildly different political and ideological spectrums that they're in. This is a diverse group of people, which which says a couple of things to us. When you see a list like this, you stop and go, okay, these are historically grounded individuals. To name names in a book that would have been read when these dudes were still alive gives some integrity and authenticity, some certainty to the actual text. So these are real people that people would have known. So there's a, a historicity to these names. It also invites us into their diversity and it invites us into their stories. As I just blitz through real fast, coming from wealth, coming from need, different ideologies, famous and obscure. Maybe you can even like trace who you most identify with. I think we list, uh, hit a list like this, like in other genealogies, like in the book of Matthew, where, where you see like kings and you also see prostitutes. You see people that were taken advantage of and you see people that took advantage of other people and we have this spectrum as an invitation for us to kind of find our story in the way that God diversely invites people to himself. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a beautiful call. It's an, it's an encouragement. It means that everyone is welcome to join the Messiah if they'll trust him by faith. If they'll pursue him, if they'll see him as the one who died for their sins, regardless of your background, regardless of of where you come from, you can actually join the Messiah. And these 12 is significant, right? So we're thinking about Matthew, who's a Jew, who's kind of justifying this lineage of, of Jesus and showing he's the newer and better Moses. The 12 disciples would match the 12 tribes of Israel, So there's a fulfillment that's happening in this. Not necessarily a replacement, but but a fulfillment in that space. So Matthew is laboring to show us the way Jesus called these people shows us that in the mission of God, there's a diversity in the way that He keeps His promise. That's the first thing that I want you to see. Then secondly, I want you to see that He calls people by keeping His promise. So look with me in verses 5 and 6. And this may have caught you off guard or rubbed you the wrong way. He says this, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles who were, were not ethnic Jews. Anybody that's not an ethnic Jew, don't, don't go to anybody who's not Jewish and enter no town of the Samaritans. And Samaritans were like half Jewish, half, half Gentile. So they were actually despised by the Jews. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, stop for a second. Remember, we're saying these are particular commands to particular people. So we're not necessarily saying, all right, we should never do evangelism anybody who's not Jewish, that would not be a good way to apply this. But what you should see is that in this context, this is God keeping his promise to reach his people. He's not just replacing rebellious Jews and starting over and scrapping that. He's grafting the Gentiles in. And in this moment in history, he's saying, hey, I want you to go to my people who've heard the prophecies, who who know my law, who've been been waiting for the Messiah. Go there first. And it's not because they're more important. It's because God is keeping his promise. And as you kind of read that and go, yeah, it just feels maybe even racist or it feels, it feels kind of weird to have this exclusion of these people. Can I trust a God like that? Let me take you to a passage that helps explain. Would you flip over to the book of Romans with me? It's to the right. It's on page 948, Romans chapter 15. It's actually on page 949 in your pew Bible all right, this blew me away. He says, I want you to go first to the Jews and not to the Gentiles, and we should just ask, like, why? What's he doing? And again, in a particular way, he's giving them a command, but we're looking for principles, and this is really, really helpful. Why would God say, go to the Jews first? Even like in Romans 116, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. But Most of us are ethnic Gentiles, and so you kind of wonder, what do I do with that? This is really beautiful. Look in verse 8 of chapter 15 in Romans. He says this, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's code for the Jews who who were circumcised in their body as a mark of their ethnicity. He, He became a servant to them to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God had made promises to his people, eternal promises to always be their God. To welcome them to send Messiah to come and rescue them to come and make all things new to keep the promise he made back in the garden with Adam and Eve that he was going to send a descendant of Adam one day that was going to come and crush the head of the serpent God had made promises to his people so He says that Christ came being a servant to the Jews to show the truthfulness in order to confirm the promises of God God is a promise keeping God and then check this out in verse 9 in order that The reason why he did this, the purpose of that, the result of this, the reason why he did that was that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So track for a second. He's saying he sent Jesus to come and rescue the Jews so that the Gentiles watching God keep his faithful covenant promise would be encouraged by the kind of God who keeps his promise and they would then glorify God for his mercy. In a way that's maybe surprising, rather than excluding the Gentiles, he's actually compelling them. This is him actually doing apologetics to the Gentiles. What kind of a God is this? Should we worship and follow him? We don't have the family line. There's been all kinds of tension and all kinds of issues throughout history. Should we follow this Jewish man, the Gentiles ask? And in stopping in this moment by just saying, hey, I want you to go fulfill my promise to the Jews first, it has this winsome, compelling engagement for those who didn't grow up Jewish. Tracking with that? So so let me, I can't think of a better illustration than this. This is kind of a dicey illustration. But so if you've ever been in a relationship and you've been cheated on and, and there's a person then like this person you're with goes after somebody else, you kind of like are super sad and crushed and then you're kind of like, whoa, good riddance, because that person is going to do that again, right? So when you cheat on somebody for somebody younger, prettier, more powerful, more wealthy. There's always going to be somebody else more younger, more beautiful, more powerful, more wealthy, and it starts this thing. So being replaced by somebody is actually fairly devastating, and and it points to the person who's replacing you as not a very faithful person. I said it was kind of a dicey illustration, but but imagine if God had just swapped out one, one people for another. You might, as that second person, go, well, what if somebody better comes along? What if somebody more needy, somebody more powerful, somebody more fill-in-the-blank? By God keeping his promise to his people, and Jesus saying to his disciples, hey, go first to the Jews and tell them the Messiah has come. Tell them that God's the kind of God who kept his promises. Tell them that all the things they have longed for have now happened. It actually has this compelling nature for those who didn't grow up Jewish. I just thought that was beautiful full even though initially it's kind of surprising and maybe kind of puts a taste in your mouth of like yeah why does he do that because doesn't God say like he loves the whole world and isn't the great commission in Matthew 28 to go to all the world and we would go absolutely right once God has established his covenant and kept his promises with his Jewish people then he expends that out to the whole world even the promise to Abraham and the covenant in the Old Testament is that he would be blessed so that he could be a blessing God's plan always was to bless his people and then for that to spread. So so the second thing I want you to see is we're looking for principles, not one-to-one parallels, but principles from this text that God invites us to join him in his mission because he is a promise-keeping God. I think that's a helpful way to understand verses 5 and 6. Okay, then then third, he invites us to show and tell the power of the kingdom. Look with me in verse 7. He tells him to go to the Jews first, and then he says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 4. This is the message of God keeping His promise. So go and tell people that the kingdom has actually come and show it in its power. He says, tell them the kingdom of God has come. In Verse 8, heal the sick, and raise the dead, and cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. And you receive without paying, now give without pay. There's actually five commands in verse 8. To heal, to raise, to cleanse, to cast out, and to give. In that section, what I think we we see is Jesus inviting His followers to do what He did and to show the power of the kingdom. Now now we read those supernatural things and our first inclination as modern people post-enlightenment is to see those as the in-breaking into the natural order. So these are supernatural things done in the natural order. But biblically, God is ruling and reigning. People aren't supposed to be sick. Right, lepers aren't supposed to be outcasts. There's not supposed to be death. This is actually a restoration of the way things were supposed to be. This is God bringing into our world the way things were actually designed to be. So if you've read uh, the book um, Gentle and Lowly, Here's a quote from that, that section. He says this, Jesus' earthly ministry was one of giving back to underserving sinners their humanity. We tend to think of the miracles of the Gospels as interruptions to the natural order. But the miracles are actually not an interruption of the natural order, but a restoration of the natural order. We are so often used to the fallen world of sickness and disease and pain and death that they seem natural. But in fact, they are the interruption. And he quotes another scholar, he says this, When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, He's driving out of creation the powers of destruction. And He's healing and restoring creative beings who are hurt and sick. The Lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation back to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only true natural thing in the world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Jesus walked the earth rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. Jesus invites his people not just to go show off, but to help restore, to show the kingdom power to the way things were promised to be, that God's going to come and make all things new. And these miracles of restoration are deposits, their first fruits, their declarations that God is actually, again, keeping his promise to come and make all things new. There's a picture, if you've been in my office, it sits behind the couch that's there and so often when I'm meeting with somebody I can see this picture behind me and it's it's kind of an impressionist thing and just a bunch of colored dots but it's the artist's rendition of Luke chapter 4. Luke 4 is where Jesus stands in the temple for the first time and he is handed the Isaiah scroll and he reads it and as he reads the scroll well let me just read it to you He, he says he's coming to actually make all things new. Jesus reads the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives." And recovering of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus quotes Isaiah hundreds of years before to say I am keeping the promise of one who is going to come as God's anointed to come and be with the poor. To liberate the captives. To come and give sight to the blind. To come and reverse the curse of this fallen and broken world. And that painting sits behind that couch for me to remind me as we're counseling or trying to do encouragement or praying together that we're not trying to find like just new principles to follow or new laws to keep or better ways of making ourselves more more impressive. We're actually asking God to do in our hearts this renewal and restoration, to come and heal and see the kingdom actually advance in this marriage or in this single person's heart or, or with this child. In this place of joblessness or brokenness or addiction, God, would you come and do what you promised to do when you stood and said you are fulfilling your promise to come and reverse the curse. When Jesus sends out his disciples and says, hey, go and cleanse, it's to welcome back outsiders. To go, to go and deal with death, that there's actually life that's available. To, to go and heal and restore and see renewal, to go and cast out demons, to push back darkness in a dark world, to be part of Messiah's mission, to see people actually hear the good news of God, to push back the demonic lies of our culture, to actually say, no, there is a true king who came to rescue and to save. When we join Jesus in these things, he's calling us to actually demonstrate and to tell the good news of his kingdom. Now, We said there's some particular things about this and we're probably all in different places of like how much can we trust this should we pray for this are these things still active I don't see anything in the scriptures that say these things have stopped I think as a people though they're often abused and manipulated and get weird and they sit on tv and they make people money and it just seems strange we should ask God to do this in our community so so even today when we take communion and if you want prayer for healing for help like I'll I'll be right there you can You can find Adam, like people with name tags on, would love to to pray for you, right? To ask God to do this kind of work. And full disclosure, I've never been a part of a community where these things happened a lot. But, But I want that. I want to see God push back darkness in our community and to see people cleansed and restored and to see people actually pushing back the effects of death and to see people who are demonized actually set free. Like we live in a spirit world where there's more that we can't see than that we can see. And and we are called to be that kind of people. That might make you super nervous. That might make you really excited. I don't know. But I think in this space, as the disciples have watched Jesus do this, he says, okay, now it's your turn. And remember, he's given them his authority. He's not saying, now you go figure this out and get your own authority, read a bunch of books and figure out how to do it. He's saying, I have all the authority and he he gives them authority. So the authority of the Messiah empowers his people on the Messiah's mission to come and show and tell this power. I just think that's really, really beautiful. And I said there were five commands in there. So, So heal, raise, cleanse, cast out, and freely give. So look at the end of verse eight. He grounds all of this In grace, he says, you've received without paying. Now give without pay. It's a way of saying everything you have, you've received by God's grace. Now go and live that way. Be a gracious people as you engage with other people. You didn't pay for this, so go and give it freely. He grounds this next section in God's grace, which I love because where he's going to go next, the fourth thing is a posture of dependence. So he calls a diverse people. We see him keep his promise. He actually shows his power and tells his power. And now he grounds this in a posture of dependence. So look with me in verse 9. He says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Okay, again, particular. I don't think this is a command that missionaries can't raise support. I don't think it's a command that we shouldn't give support. I don't think it's a command that we shouldn't pay people well that work in ministry. I don't think it's that. Even he says, right, a laborer is worth what he deserves, right? A laborer deserves his food. Like, you, you should engage with people. And in fact, as he goes on about going into different towns and where you feel welcome, it's in the hospitality of people, the generosity of others that missionary needs are actually met, which is super important. But, but as a principal, as he's calling them out, and he says, I want you to trust me. Don't get a whole bunch of money. Don't take a whole bunch of provision. I want you to go lean in a way that you would actually be demonstrating your dependence. It's a call for followers of Jesus to have a posture and a lifestyle of radical dependence. And we have stuff with wisdom, right? So I want to be able to help my kids pay for college. I want to think about retirement. I want to I think about being a good student. So I want to think about being generous. And so how do we think about having a dependent posture while we hold on to wisdom, but can we just say that wisdom doesn't cancel out dependence? A a thought to be wise or seeking to be wise with your finances doesn't mean you stop having this embodied sensation of your dependence. Because remember, he's the promise-keeping God who's showing his power. You you can actually trust him. This call for a dependent posture comes after he's already said, hey, I keep my promises. Calling a diverse people. I want to show, show my power, and I want you to follow me mindful of your dependence, right? Grounded in grace, everything you have you've received, so, so now go and give. Hey, I think there are bajillion applications of that for us. I think for you personally, there's application for you to stop and look at where you are and what you're trusting in, how you're thinking about resources, and maybe it's like people resources or idea resources. Maybe it's not even money. Maybe it's like social cachet that you're, you're gathering and collecting. To hear God say, hey, I don't want you to be dependent on those things. I want you to be dependent on me. To be a dependent people would actually make us a really generous people. And we could also see the, the cut the other direction, right? So if he's saying, go as dependent people, there's a call here to actually meet the needs of those who go. So there's a, a call for us to be a generous church. A dependent church is a generous church. That, that gives and supports and sacrifices. We had our membership class on Wednesday night and we're kind of walking through kind of what we're trying to do as a church and we had this riveting section on what it meant to be part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, it was like mind-blowing. People were like weeping. We took a baptism and an offering. It was fantastic. No, but seriously, we were talking about what it means to be kind of part of our denomination. And, and it occurred to me studying this passage that, that when we give 10% of our income away to Part of the cooperative program, we're actually fulfilling some of this because our denomination is set up where if someone can say, hey, "I feel called to be a missionary," they don't have to raise support. Our denomination has collected resources across all of our churches to cooperate to actually send people. That was like a pretty good plug for being SBC, which I didn't didn't use at that. I just chose that to with all of you. I wanted you to be excited about that. But there's a space here where you go. There's there's a fulfillment of our generosity to this passage that we can actually send people in a dependent posture as we're generous, which then rolls us into like some corporate applications. Like I would love for us to give more money away. And we are an incredibly generous church. I am so thankful for our members that have been here for a long time that were faithful, that were frugal, that were wise, that it stewarded money really well. Like we're in a good spot. And even when things were not very like healthy or things weren't going great, we were still giving money away as a church. So I love that legacy of our church. And they're all over the congregation, so I won't look in one area, but but thank you for those of you who've been here 60 and 50 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 5 and 10 years. Like, thank you for your faithfulness to our church. You've put us in a great spot where it's easy to believe that God would meet our needs if we were generous. And then just to think about, like, how we go forward as a people. How can we be more generous as a people? How can we sacrifice? More when it comes to how we relate here and how we think about ministries, and what's required of us to run a church. Can we be as lean as possible so we can give away more than we ever have? Like I think that's an application of this text. And as we do that, it would actually help meet the needs of other people who are actually going. But but I don't think we should just be like patrons. I don't think this is just like make a bunch of money so you can support other people. I don't think that's enough for stewardship. I think you should do that, but I think that's too small of a view. I think stewardship actually has in your heart a posture of dependence where, where you say, I'm trusting that God is going to help. He's going to provide. He's going to care, and I can extend his kingdom resources to see his kingdom advance, and he's going to actually meet me and help me. There's a lot of application. Can I, can I give you one that's like real time? Like our finance team meets today, personnel team meets next month to kind of talk through like values and vision. So just like just pray, like pray at the leadership level in our church that God would put in our hearts a dependent and generous posture. I love what God's doing in our church and I I imagine he is gathering people here, not so we can just collect something here, but so we can distribute that widely and that would be really fun to be a part of. And I think it would match what this text is about, to send people out grounded in grace with this posture of a dependence. I think that's really, really beautiful. And in that membership class, what I loved was the questions were about how do we give more away? How are we accountable? What's the, what's the plan? How do we do some of those things? It was just fun to hear kind of a desire to be this generous and dependent church. So, so tons of application. I think you should stop and ask, where am I living a life of dependence? Because you don't have to have a lot of money, and you can still not feel very dependent. You can actually be poor and not have a posture of dependence. Or you can functionally not have much, but still be grasping and clinging and trying to earn and deserve. Or you can have a lot of money and give a lot of money away and seem generous, but in your own heart, still you're, you're not actually feeling dependent, right? So regardless of your, your net worth, there's a call here to stop and go, hey, am I, am I running lean in such a way that my desire is to see the kingdom advance? So there's individual application, corporate application, that There's a ton, but I'm trying to honor my commitment on this sermon thing. Uh, so, grounded in apostolic dependence. Finally, in these last couple of sections, what we see is an expectation of both hospitality and persecution is your fifth piece. Look with me in verse 11. It says, whatever town or village you enter into, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now now he's going to go into another section about persecution, so we'll save some of this for next week. But there's a, a general sense that following Jesus puts you at odds with the culture. And the anticipation is to expect the same way they rejected Jesus that they'll reject you. So there's this loving setting of expectations. Hey, to follow Jesus is not to have all your like, hopes and dreams met in this life. It's not to be fully respected by your neighbors. In fact, they crucified Jesus. And if you follow him and pledge allegiance to him, then surely that will put you at odds with the kingdom of this world. And so he says, as you go, there'll be some people that welcome you. They're, they're people of peace. And there'll be some that reject you. I first encountered this idea of a person of peace when I was on a a trip in L.A. when I was in high school. Sitting down with a pastor and a missionary, and he was talking about their strategy to kind of help share the gospel with people in different neighborhoods. And, And they called it a person of peace. And they said there's in every neighborhood, there's just someone who's been there for like a long time that people respect and that they admire. And so our hope is actually to build a relationship with that person. And as that person actually then trusts us and sees that we're not out to like take from anybody, we're not trying to rip anybody off, we're trying to bless and serve, then that person of peace actually welcomes us and then other people actually engage with us as well. Which I thought was kind of a brilliant thing. I think that's what he's talking about. As you go to towns, look for somebody who would welcome you. If they welcome you, then stay there. And let them introduce you to friends and let you actually engage there, right? Which is something about like relationships. Like that we would share the gospel relationally, not just with strangers randomly, but there's something about relationships with that. But there's also a promise of persecution, right? He says there'll be people who reject you, and when they reject you, he says to shake the dust off your feet and move on. That imagery is kind of strange, and it probably means lots of things, but, but enough for today is just to, to acknowledge it just means like you don't have to keep driving and driving and driving and offending and offending and offending. If someone says, hey, I don't want to listen, you can say, hey, that's okay, I get it. I love you, bless you, and you can, and you can move on. two two things about that. One, remember it's the authority of Jesus, and he's not limited to you and your witness. That's really good news. So you didn't fail as you share the good news, and someone says, eh, they're not necessarily rejecting you, they're rejecting the gospel. That's good news. And the other thing is, I think in the way that you do that winsomely and lovingly, you actually have a compelling witness to that person. Because you, you know what it's like to end the day and to think through how you interacted with people, even whether it was your waiter or somebody at your office or somebody on your sales call or somebody you were at the park with, and you kind of replay that conversation a little bit. Imagine somebody who you share the good news of Jesus with and they go, whew, i did never said it at all. And you're not a jerk about it. You don't keep driving it. You go, cool, man. Hey, I, just, I know he loves you. It's okay. We don't have to talk about it anymore. That, that winsome engagement to not keep pushing and pushing and pushing I think has an effect on someone's heart over the long I think to be the kind of people that can just move on. And I think there's some different application for family and close friends and people that are like in our lives in really intimate ways. I don't think it's like a one and done offer of the gospel. I think there's a way to persevere there. But when it comes to sharing your faith, I think he's calling you not to keep tunneling down. And maybe in that too, there's a winsomeness to that with people. But, but he promises persecution. Again, next week we'll engage some more of that. He's going to give some Instructions and some warnings and some encouragement about how to engage with the world there. But as he's calling people to join him on his mission, he says, hey, I'm calling a diverse people. I kept my promises. I want you to show the power of the kingdom, have this posture of dependence, and then expect persecution. And here's what we notice as we kind of go towards communion. Jesus is both the means and the end of all of those things. He called a diverse people. He actually is the one who kept the promises. He's the one who who shows the power. It's actually his power. He lived a posture of dependence and he was willing to face persecution on our behalf as he went all the way to the cross to make sacrifice for our sins, to make us right with God. So what he calls us to, he actually does and embodies. So let's just turn our attention then to taking communion. And we'll ask the Spirit of God to make more application in your heart, even while you stop and say, Christ is the one who satisfies and is the sacrifice for me. If you're not familiar, communion is a way Christians declare their faith in Jesus. The little cup that we'll take uh, has has some juice in it It represents the blood of Jesus, sacrificed for us and shed on the cross. And the little wafer represents his broken body that was shed as our sacrifice to forgive us of our sins. And so Christians take communion to say, this is my hope. This is what I'm trusting in. And they're nourished by that. And we take time in our community just to pray and to apply and to sing while we take communion that means if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's no pressure for you to take this. In fact, you probably, probably shouldn't, but you could just pray. There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray, which I'd invite you to do that. And even as I say that, maybe you say, gosh, I want to follow a God like this. this, this God who invites people on his mission, who, who does these things for us. Like, I want to follow that God. If, if that's you, there's a prayer for faith on the back of that bulletin. Man, pray that. Take communion. Let's talk afterwards about what it means to follow Jesus. We'd love to invite you in that space to come and trust Christ. So, so we will take communion together. If you missed that, there's some cups out in the hallway and some cups over here in the front. Next week, we'll go back to loaves and cups here at the front uh, with COVID stuff shifting. But for today, we'll take these little cups one more time. And as you hold that little cup, remember, God loves you. He sacrificed his life for you. That nourishes you, and it gives you lots of room to ask for his help and to make applications. So let me pray for us then we'll take communion, and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. And thanks for the ways that you've done it, even going all the way to inviting us to join you in your mission. And so we just stop before we try to think through all the things next. We stop and just say, thank you for what you've done. Would you ground all of our application in grace? Freely, we've been given. We're so thankful that you are a generous God, even sacrificing yourself on our behalf. Would you encourage us? And for those who are weary and those who are struggling and those who are despondent and those who are hard-hearted, would you use that declaration of your love to encounter them in this space? So we say thank you, Jesus. Nourish us now as we reflect on your broken body and shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll take communion when you're ready, and then we'll sing together.